Well, welcome to Quantum number 216, and as promised from last week, we're going to look at what I would call a post-Queen world. The people have recognized their sovereign, and now the Archbishop administers the coronation oath. Madam, is your majesty willing to take the oath? I am willing. Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Union of South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon, and of your possession and the other territories to any of them belonging or pertaining, according to their respective laws and customs. I solemnly promise so to do. The promise is sealed at a fold stool before the altar. The queen kisses the brook and signs the form of oath. Now, even if you're not a royalist, if you're not British, or part of the Commonwealth, I think everyone is aware that the death of the queen is something that has enormous significance. The Bible itself is then presented to her by the moderator of the Church of Scotland. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. I'm not going to play a tribute to the Queen again because uh, I did so in, a, in an earlier episode. You'll find that in Quantum number 202 and uh, actually it was one of my favourite ones uh, and I would uh, strongly recommend you go back to it. But I'll tell you what, let's begin with Queen playing God Save the Queen. was from their album Night at the Opera. Um, I just find it's funny I remember that as a, a kind of young teenage rebel who uh, was not a royalist. I'm still not a royalist, by the way. I'm not as Republican, as militantly Republican as I was then. But I was just, I was, why are a rock band playing the national anthem? Well, uh, there's so much that's been said about the Queen. I said, I'm not going to play a tribute, but... Uh, Perhaps these words from the Australian politician, former politician, uh, wonderful Christian man, uh, John Anderson, kind of summarise it all. Like millions of people around the world, I feel deeply saddened by the passing of Queen Elizabeth II after the extraordinary 70-year reign of Her Majesty. She modelled so much that is good, so much that is admirable, so much that we ought to aspire to ourselves. Courage, persistence, the service of others, 
genuine and sincere Christian faith and charity and graciousness. If we're wise, we'll ensure that her legacy carries on for a very long time indeed, because she has shown us how we should behave and how we should treat one another. May she rest in peace. She modelled so much that is good and admirable. And he talks about her legacy carrying on. But will it? That's really what we want to look at. Now, there may be aspects of this program, as well, uh, of this podcast, that, that will be a little controversial for people, but that makes it more interesting, doesn't it? Uh, I, I don't think her legacy will carry on, to be honest. I think this marks an end of an era. We hear that often, but I think that, that this is true. And I am deeply, deeply concerned for my native country, but not just my native country, but for what this resembles for the rest of the world as well. Now, that seems a very overblown claim, but let me tell you why. But first of all, I do want to say something about the Queen's faith. It's very interesting, the reactions to her death, because on the one hand, and I think this is wrong, actually, you get Christians saying ridiculous things like she's the best evangelist we've, we've had in the 20th century, which is absolute nonsense. Um, and other people kind of lauding her as some kind of saint. She was a believer in Christ. She was a sister in Christ. I think her witness was uh, remarkably strong given the circumstances in which she found herself. But isn't it fascinating that on the other hand, let's say, for example, I read an obituary in the New York Times, which was very lengthy and very thorough and very full, never mentioned God, never mentioned her faith, which given that the faith, her faith was core to her life, is really quite astonishing. And it shows you how people blank out things that they don't want. And, you know, I didn't hear much in Australia here on the ABC, didn't hear much in the Herald. You hear words like duty and, you know, various moral qualities that she had, but not her faith. Well, an exception to that was the Spectator podcast, Coffeehouse Shots. And again, there's a link to this, as there are to uh, many other things in the podcast on the website. But uh, this is Charles Moore uh, talking about the Queen's faith. I think it was absolutely central to the Queen's approach, and not only because she took her role as Supreme Governor of the Church of England very seriously, but for more profound uh, reasons. Um, That was her faith. Um, And she had a particular type of Christian faith, which is very acquired, but is all pervading. So each day um, she prayed every night and she each Sunday she attended church. Um, And she was very much of that school, I think, which doesn't want to talk about it, but does want to do it um, to practice more than to preach. Whenever she did preach, which was very, very slightly at her Christmas broadcast, the name of Jesus would usually come in and the Christmas message in some way would always come in, a Christian message at Christmas. And um, I think it explains the way she did so much by stealth. You have to think, in order to understand the Queen, you have to understand uh, the things you didn't quite see or that she didn't quite say as much as the things that she did. And that's very characteristic of a certain humble Christianity, which is you're not showing off you don't matter as yourself. It's your duty to God and your neighbour that matters. And that's, that gives uh, life, lifelong uh, sustaining power. 
And I think it, it's a wonderful analysis. It's worth letting. It's only 12 minutes, the Coffee House Shots uh, podcast on this. But I thought he got it spot on. I thought the humble by stealth thing was a really important thing. A while ago, the Guardian of all newspapers did an analysis of the Queen's Christmas broadcasts, and they found that from 2010 onwards, when she wrote her own ones, they became much more overtly Christian. That doesn't surprise me. Now, here's another interesting fact that I did not know. The Queen would not allow her anointing as Queen to be filmed because it was sacred. She allowed you know, the, the 1953 coronation was filmed and it was one of the, the big television events of the 20th century, one of the first big television events as well. This is a most and uh, I'll tell you what, let's just take a wee break and listen to some of it. Not until she has been anointed as Solomon was anointed by Zadok can she be crowned. During the anthem, she will be divested of her crimson robe of state and all her jewels, and will put on a simple white linen garment. In this garment of white, in such contrast to the splendors about her, she will move for the first time to King Edward's chair. That's Handel's Zadok the Priest. Now, as I said, there's... I do think this event is of more significance than a 96-year-old, wonderfully loved queen dying. I think that Gavin Ashendon, who was speaking on the Unbelievable program, and again, we'll put a link to that, was absolutely correct in saying this does mark possibly the end of Christendom. Uh, and certainly in the UK and possibly Australia and uh, and Canada and elsewhere if it's not already gone. And it's the big change I want to look at. There's a, a tremendous article by Ben Judah in Unheard, Our Divine Monarchy is Finished. And I just want to read you some parts of it because I thought, thought this was really helpful. Queen Elizabeth was the last revered European monarch. There are a few other Koenigs and Reigns in Europe flying part-time as KLM pilots, cycling on their own to official occasions or forced to abdicate because of garden variety corruption. These are men and women afraid of their own shadows. There was something different about Elizabeth II. 
Millions treated her with a hint of the divine right of kings, a woman who lived above interviews, who loomed over her own society mysteriously, with more in common with Franz Joseph or the Romanovs than her own son. And this is the key thing, and I think this is really important, so please hold on to this. this is, these are fairly lengthy quotes, but I think this article was very key. This is the end of something which began on Christmas Day in 508 with the baptism of Clovis, which was the true start of sacral European kingship. The story of a once Germanic warrior aristocracy that conquered and ruled Europe for over a thousand years after the barbarian invasions that finished off the Roman Empire. He talks about that the, the house of Saxe-Goburg-Gotha, with a thousand-year history, changed its name to the pedestrian Windsor. Remember, the Queen basically does come from a, a, a German family. Now, this funeral, he said, is the last great pretense of that thousand-year reign, the last funeral for a British world power. The world's leaders will never gather like this in Westminster Abbey again. The crowds will not flock to London, let alone Edinburgh, like this again. He talks about Kipling, and again, this is so perceptive, so forgive me for quoting this. If Kipling were alive today, he might walk the Royal Mile in Edinburgh and see tourists, not mourners. He would stop outside Buckingham Palace and note the mawkishness of the Paddington Bears, the flowers wilting in their cellophane. None of this has the Christian certainty of Elizabeth's coronation. It has all the hallmarks, the post-Anglican way we mourn now, how we festoon grief with lilies, postcards and teddies. He wouldn't be able to write, God of our fathers known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, even as a lament or a prayer. The gap between his world, Churchill's world, the Queen's world and our own is more than a matter of years. The threads that that, that bound church, crown and country into onward Christian soldiers are gone. That was a Christian empire. There is only spectacle left. And then this line. This is a wonderful line. Elizabeth II was believable because she believed. The last European monarch to believe her role was a divine calling. Today, the old religion is not felt, even by the king. So uncomfortable. A scholar of Islam, a guest at Al-Hazar, a patron of Jewish charities. He's so uncomfortable at being defender of the faith. Charles could only bring himself to say in his first address to the nation, that his faith was rooted in the Church of England, like he had long outgrown it. The article goes on to talk about how um, King Charles's family tree includes Charlemagne, Hugh Capot, who became the, from the Duke of Franks into the Kings of France, and of course, Henry VIII, Charles I, and Charles II. And it's interesting, Charles I certainly believed in the divine right of kings, Here's a clip from history, well, from how uh, a film sees this history. Mr. Speaker, gentlemen, you must pardon this infringement of your privilege, but I will not detain you long. Mr. Speaker, I must make bold with your chair. I have here a warrant for the arrest of five members of this house. John Pym, Henry Ireton, John Hamden, Oliver Cromwell, and Sir Arthur Haslerig upon a charge of treason. I see that the birds have flown. Mr. Speaker, where are these gentlemen? May it please your majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak. 
Except as this house gives me leave. Well, sir, I have eyes. I see that one of them is here. Captain, take him. Any action against any member of this house is a breach of privilege. And I move this house declares as public enemies any who lay hands upon its members. I further move that any such action against this house be considered a crime against the people and treason against this nation. Yes. Yes. Mr. Speaker, you will inform the members of this house that their presence is no longer required by the nation. This parliament is, by my authority, terminated, dissolved. That is King Charles I coming into the Parliament, seeking to arrest Oliver Cromwell, Cromwell charging him with treason. Ultimately, this was to lead to the only time that an English king uh, had his head removed, who was executed. Now, there are people today who are still getting enormously upset at that and who think it was, you know, entirely wrong, the sacred one, the anointed one. Uh, and I personally don't go along with that. I'm... I'm very keen on Cromwell, to be honest, but I better not say that because people still today still get upset. But it is the case, the Bible tells us that the people who govern us, whether kings or or prime ministers, politicians, whatever, they are servants of God. And I think we've lost that sense. And it's not great. The Sydney Morning Herald, by the way, went on to describe the... um, the United Kingdom is having lost its biggest strength, the glue that for so long has bound together the Union. For 70 years, she was the finest diplomat for the United Kingdom, its greatest exponent of soft power. Well, not everyone agreed. Not everyone uh, mourned in that same way. I was quite amused to discover this clip. I wonder if you know who this is. I'm not against any of them personally. I'm against the idea that people people can be born to rule, that people, because of the family they're born into, should be able to be the head of state of our country. I think that's disgraceful. That was Liz Truss, the now Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, as a young teenager, explaining why she was not for the monarchy. I'm sure that's a clip that embarrasses her now, but we don't. Uh, who would go against her teenage, or remember her teenage indiscretions. As I said, I'm not a a strong royalist at all, but I I do mourn the loss of the Queen and I do regard her as a unifying force in the United Kingdom. And as I say, we are concerned. But others have behaved appallingly in this and it just shows you the level to which our world has gone. Listen, for example, to this. This is an astonishing story for me to hear in Australia because this is a woman who comes from my own area, Muir of Ord in Easter Ross. Well, I'm from Easter Ross. And uh, she was just so silly. I mean, she's been driven out of the town. I think a farmer dumped his uh, a load of um, slurry outside her shop. The windows were put in. She had to be escorted out. But what a silly, silly thing to do. And in case you missed it, she was saying, Lizard Liz is dead. London Bridge has fallen. Now... 
there may be something wrong with that lady. Um, but that comes from somewhere. Remember a while ago, the Nationals showing the Queen and others going down the pan? And there are others who are very anti-royalist. I thought the behaviour, I thought most politicians, Nicola Sturgeon included, have behaved with a degree of dignity. But here's Patrick Harvey from the Scottish Greens. At the last coronation, the oath still referred to other countries as the possessions of an empire. And here at home, human rights and equality were distant ideas with racist discrimination remaining legal and people treated as criminals and outcasts because of their sexuality. Now we can look back and celebrate extraordinary progressive change, even as we must continue to defend what has been achieved. There are those for whom the long reign of Elizabeth II and indeed the institution of monarchy represent continuity, stability, permanence. But in truth, the tide of progress cannot be halted. It feels slow as we live it day by day, but in time it is dramatic. So, presiding officer, as Charles III begins his reign, let us hope, indeed redouble our determination, that he will have the opportunity to witness change just as transformational and more. It is still needed. It is unbelievable that with King Charles sitting in front of him, he gives a lecture on progress. Um, you should watch the clip and just see. It's just incredible. It's just un un incredible that he did that. It wasn't brave. It was arrogant and, and stupid. Um, unlike the leaders of the Tory, Labour and Liberal Democrat parties, Mr Harvey did not say God save the King. By the way, neither did Nicola Sturgeon. Patrick Harvey believes that we're going to see change, more progressive change. That is actually a chilling prospect because it's not progressive. It is, as we've often pointed out, regressive. He also said something that was interesting at the beginning. He said, it comes into all of our lives. It's a reminder, talking about death, it's a reminder that the reality of human life is not rooted in status or in title, but in the connections we make, bonds of love and friendship, of family and of service to one another. He missed out, of course, the fact we're made in the image of God. He missed all of that out and it was just complete hypocrisy. He was speaking of that because of his status and his title, for which, by the way, he gets paid £100,000 a year. Here in Australia, Adam Bant Green, uh, of the Greens, of course, oh, sorry, Adam Bant of the Greens, <laughs> used the Queen's death immediately, within hours, to advocate for republicanism. Others, like radio star M. Ruschiano, says, mooring the Queen is white privilege. Yes, of course it is. The Newcastle AFL player, oh, sorry, the NRL player, um, Caitlin Moran, uh, tweeted out, can you believe she tweeted out this? Today's a good beep day. Uncle Luke announces his tour and this dumb dog dies. Happy beep Friday. Now, here's the fascinating thing. If anyone in the NRL tweeted anything remotely critical of let's say Black Lives Matter. They're gone. They're fine. They're off. This woman calls the Queen, the head of state of Australia, a dumb dog. Now, people say this is because of, uh, you know, the record of indig indigenous and so on, but she, you know, I don't think you can blame the Queen for that. And here's another perspective from an Aboriginal elder. 
we had to be on point. There wasn't, you know, can we have a cup of tea and see the dogs and smell the roses? We were there to do business. So we get in there and we're totally disarmed. Totally disarmed. Uh, the Queen, she was... It's a, it's a funny thing to feel a bit emotional about it because she, uh, she's so welcoming. And she, uh, she thanked us for coming. And, um, she, uh, I think for the first, excuse me, I think for the first time in our lives, we were treated properly as, uh, uh, she treated us as human beings. You hear that? For the first time in our lives, we were treated properly as human beings. Another thing that's fascinating in all this, King Charles, for a while as Prince Charles, he was suggesting that he didn't want to say, be defender of the faith, just defender of faith or faiths. Well, here he is taking his vow. I, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of my other realms and territories, King, Defender of the Faith, do faithfully promise and swear that I shall inviolably maintain and preserve the settlement of the true Protestant religion, as established by the laws made in Scotland in prosecution of the claim of right, and particularly by an act intituled an act for securing the Protestant religion and Presbyterian church government, and by the acts passed in the parliament of both kingdoms for union of the two kingdoms, together with the government, worship, discipline, rights, and privileges of the Church of Scotland. So help me God. I I wonder if that vow will ever be taken again. The true Protestant religion, the claim of right, securing the Protestant religion and Presbyterian church government, the government worship and discipline and rights of the Church of Scotland, so help me God. Wow. Do I think he will do that? No, I don't. I really don't think he will do that. Do I think he shares the faith of his mother? I don't know. I very much doubt it. He's given no evidence of that. Will he be defender of the faith? No. And speaking of that, we had the St. Giles service. Now, I heard a lot of praise for this from Christians. And there are certainly aspects of it that were absolutely superb. I thought the singing, I thought it was the fact it was was dignified. I thought the fact that it was a Christian service, not a multi-faith service, was actually very important. But then I listened to the sermon and it really depressed me. And I'll tell you why it depressed me. Because it was a sermon about the Queen, not about Christ. This is in the church of John Knox. And this is in the church celebrating a Queen who worshipped Jesus as her Lord and Saviour. And it's almost as though she was the Lord and Saviour and he was just a bit part. Here was a tremendous opportunity with a worldwide audience to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Queen believed in. And instead, the moderator of the Church of Scotland took the coward's way out, as far as I'm concerned, and just spoke about the Queen with Jesus as a bit player. 
There was nothing of the gospel in there. Nothing that could offend anyone. Nothing about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It wasn't a service worthy of St. Giles, nor of the Queen, and certainly not of Christ. However, it did have its bright moments, and this is one of them. That is, uh, was Psalm 118, sung by Karen Matheson, former lead singer, or maybe she still is the lead singer of Capra Cayley. Utterly beautiful. You know, in that psalm, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. So much beauty in that psalm. I felt overall that there is a sense of proper mourning and desolation and reverence and respect for the Queen, which was good. But sometimes that descended into kind of Diana-esque idolatry, where we were almost worship the Queen. She's the unifying force. I, f- I heard a Christian say, well, I thought she was eternal. Wow, really? I mean, I know you were exaggerating. But there is only one eternal one, and there is only one ultimate unifying force. I thought Tim Farron, the former Lib Dem leader in the House of Commons, got it spot on. Here he is. So she was a constant to us all, and has been said already, but the constant in her life was her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's remember this, that for many people, you know, it may have been, but for her, it was not a perfunctory ceremonial faith. It was a living, active faith in a living saviour. A constant, real, living faith in a real, living Christ. Many examples of that. The Queen, for example, in her Christmas address of 2011. Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. But I think the broadcast I actually loved the most was the one from 1957. The first one, her first Christmas broadcast. She says this, It is not the new inventions which are the difficulty, 
The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. Patrick Harvey, take note. They would have religion thrown aside, morality in personal and public life made meaningless, honesty counted as foolishness, and self-interest set up in place of self-restraint. And then this, this is just, I, I couldn't believe this when I read it. I read the whole the thing. Um, I wasn't around in 1957. I would like to read you a few lines from Pilgrim's Progress, said the Queen, because I'm sure we can say with Mr. Valiant for Truth these words, though with great difficulty I got hither. Yet now I do not repent me of all the trouble I have been at to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage, and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles, who now will be my rewarder. That's a great epitaph for the Queen, isn't it? You know, wasn't it lovely, by the way, the rainbow over Buckingham Palace? Is that not a sign? I think it was. But in all of this, I've been talking about the Queen and talking about the responses and how we think about what may occur. But our hope is not in the Queen. Our hope is in Christ. And I heard this wonderful clip and I want to share it with you. What that means for us today from Tim Keller, who is struggling with uh, cancer. Please listen to this. Let me just say something that Kathy and I have talked to each other about in the last year. If Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, walked out, was seen by hundreds of people, talked to them, if he was raised from the dead, then you know what? Everything's going to be all right. Mm. Whatever you're worried about right now, whatever you're afraid of, everything is actually going to be okay. Because you got to remember, we're not just talking about resurrected people. Jesus Christ is, and this is where Christianity is unique, we're talking about a resurrected world, meaning other, uh, there's plenty of other religions that talk about a future afterlife, which is a non-material world. In other words, you get a consolation for the world we've lost. Mm -hmm. Christianity says it's not just your bodies are being resurrected, but the the world is actually going to be a material world that's cleansed from all evil and suffering and uh, and sin. And if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then the whole world is going to be, in a sense, resurrected, and everything is going to be okay. Everything. You don't even you don't know how. I don't know how, but it will be. So, uh, and you know what? Actually, it would, right now I couldn't possibly be convinced that Jesus was not raised from the mm. dead, either intellectually or existentially so whenever i'm and by the way but kathy and i listen we cry we, had, we, we cried a lot last mm. night sometimes the reality of the shortness of what we have left here just overwhelms us and we were just weeping together and and crying and then you say if jesus christ was raised from the dead it is going to be okay and then you can wipe your tears but you don't stop mm. crying uh it's like salt in the wound that keeps the wound from going bad mm. uh that keeps the wound from getting infected but it doesn't mean that until the end of, you know, until we actually meet Jesus Christ, we, we still have our wounds. So let me leave it there. I think the United Kingdom, I think Australia, I think much of the Western world is in deep trouble. But the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. Christ will be glorified. There will be resurrection. You listening to this may be struggling just now with so many things. Trust 
in the Christ of the resurrection. I honestly believe that the queen did that and she bore witness to him in in the way that she best could. But we began with, with God save the queen. I think he has saved the queen. And I want to leave you with the resurrection hymn from um, Keith Getty and Stuart Townend. See what a morning, glorious but gloriously bright. tell you what we shall see you uh, next week please feel free if you want to support the podcast by going on to the podbean fundraiser got any comments news views please feel free to send them to me Uh, god bless you i pray that god would save the king and that he would be as good a witness as his mother eventually and wherever you are may you know the king of kings bye